The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon on the topic of transferring the basis of I-485 and job portability, more commonly known as EB-2 versus EB-3 and portability and jumping all around. And we're going to discuss all of those questions with you, whether you're an employer, an employee, a family member, a friend trying to learn for a friend, or whoever the case may be. Uh, joining me on today's panel are two of my brilliant and esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Korzad Mehta, um, who's had over, I guess, 10 to 15 years immigration law experience at this point, well beyond 15 years, okay? And Jessica, who is almost at the same point, again, brilliant, smart colleagues, and we are going to discuss some of the commonly asked questions to hopefully shed some light and give you some peace of mind. So by way of background, for many years, as most of us are aware, EB2 numbers in general consistently tend to be far more favorable than the EB3 counterpart, not just for India, but almost for all countries in the world. Since October of 2020, of course, there was that whole deluge of thousands and thousands of EB3 downgrade cases that were filed because for a while, EB3 cutoff dates particularly for EB3 India, moved well past the EB2 dates. A big part of the reason, of course, was the number of EB2 cases that had been filed for Indian nationals wanting to stay ahead of the curve. So now that EB2 again appears to be back to being ahead of EB3, all of those so-called downgrade petitions that we had filed previously back in October, November of 2020, all of those people now want to try to do some type of either an amendment or do an interfiling or something. So the USCIS, as we all know, issued guidance on January 21st of 2022 to clarify some of the issues pertaining to interfiling, though it ended up maybe posing as many questions as answers. So again, as I said, we will focus on transferring from one employment-based category to another. And with that, I am going to invite Korzad to try and answer the question, why is USCIS now requesting that applicants consider interfiling to an EB-2, for example, or even possibly an EB-1 if the candidate is eligible? Korzad? Thanks, Sheila. Primarily, it's availability. Uh, the, as we all know, immigration to the United States in the employment-based um, uh, uh, category, as well as um, most family-based categories, is numerically limited. There's a finite amount of immigrant visas available per fiscal year in each of these categories. Uh, the, the limit in most years pre-pandemic was always the base 140,000 that are divided 
per country and per category. And that results in a very, very low amount of visas per country relatively. And then for countries with high usage of those immigrant visas, like India, primarily like China, uh, those numbers will get exhausted very, very quickly. Uh, Post-pandemic, due to lack of use of family-based numbers at consulates and embassies abroad, uh, the law requires that any unused number, fall, family-based number, fall into the following year's employment-based quota. That has resulted for the first time in a very, very long time for the annual limit in the employment-based category to increase from that 140,000 to this year almost double that. So in a word, the reason why USCIS wants, the, uh, wants individuals who are eligible to uh, transfer the basis from one of the lower categories, like EB3, into a higher category like EB2 is because there are, or EB1 is because there are more numbers, uh, plentiful numbers available in those categories, and they want to utilize them. They want to utilize them better than they did last year. Now, to give you a little bit more granular detail, the overall employment-based annual limit for fiscal year 2022, you know, it's just very, very robust. And based on that, the, uh, the USCIS would like to not repeat what happened last fiscal year where there was a, to use the term wastage, but let's just call it inability to utilize the full allotment in, in fiscal year 2021, They'd like to do that in fiscal year 2022. So along with availability, USCIS is really taking maybe a different tack in how it administers its system to benefit the maximum amount of people uh, that they can. Thank you, Korzad. That's very helpful and I'm sure very confusing as well for those who don't quite understand all of the unused numbers and the spillover. Really confusing, but I think you did a brilliant job of explaining it and simplifying it and talking about the spillover and unused. So the next question that people always ask is, I hear these terms like interfiling, transferring the basis of my 485, upgrades, downgrades. What do these terms mean, Jessica? So Sheila, sort of like you were mentioning in the introduction, um, Interfiling, transferring the basis are sort of synonymous. Basically, it's when a person has a pending I-485 application and wishes to sort of change the basis. So, for example, they initially filed with that EB-3 I-140 petition. They'd now like to interfile this EB-2 I-140 or request to change the basis of their I-485. The reason why there's a lot of terminology out there is because interfiling is sort of the old uh, language that we use from the old um, adjudicator's field manual, the transferring the basis is in the new USCS policy manual, so they're exactly the same. Um, people sort of talk about upgrading and downgrading depending on if you're going EB3 to EB2 or EB2 to EB3, but overall, it's all trying to achieve the same thing, to basically request the USCIS to adjudicate your I-485 on a different petition than the one that you filed with. Okay. Thank you, Jessica. People then ask, so how do I make a request to transfer the basis of the 485, right? Or, or rather, even before that, what are the requirements to transfer the basis of my 485 from one employment-based category to a different one? As m most of us are aware, to qualify for interfiling, 
the USCIS requires that all of the following conditions have been satisfied. What are they? One, the applicant must have continuously maintained eligibility to adjust status. For example, if the status issue and uh, the person wishes to move to a different employment-based category, that could have issues of the person who is married gets divorced and then remarries. Again, the category changes. So you must maintain that particular eligibility under that particular classification. Second, the 485 application must be pending, meaning it cannot have been denied already. Third, the applicant must be eligible for the category requested. And fourth, the priority date must be current on the date that the interfiling request is submitted under the final action chart, not just the date of filing. So note that ultimately the USCIS believes that the request to go back and forth from EB2 to EB3 or vice versa is in their discretion. But we, in general, we haven't had too many issues where they approve it once you file it, though they may take their own sweet time in doing so. So next, I'm going to ask the next question that we're routinely asked, how do I make a request to transfer the basis of my 485? Or is that? Um, you know, the simple answer to that question is in writing. <laughs> well, because the USCIS is not set up at this point in time to request uh, to accept these requests electronically. So it's going to be in writing. Uh, USCIS has set up a very special dedicated mailing address uh, in um, in the Inland Empire part of uh, California. I'm not exactly sure about. Uh, California's geography, but basically it's, it's on the outer outskirts of Los Angeles to field these requests. Um, the, the nuts and bolts of the request are going to be a letter. And so you make the request in writing. Um, a copy of the receipt notice for the adjustment of status application that's pending. A copy of the approval notice for the immigrant petition that an individual is seeking to transfer the basis of that pending adjustment of status to, you've got to make sure, like Sheila just said, that that uh, approval notice reflects that the petition has an immediately available immigrant visa number in the category you're looking for. So final action date has to be current, not filing date. You know, you know we get confused amongst those charts on the visa bulletin every month sometimes, right? But this is for final action current cutoff date. Uh, and an, a 485 Supplement J form that's completed, that uh, is executed by both your, the applicant your, uh, and the uh, employer who's the petitioner on that immigrant petition that you're transferring the basis to. Because the 485 Supplement J is effectively a confirmation of the job offer that is, that is contained within that immigrant petition. Uh, the both the applicant and the foreign and the company are stating under penalty of perjury because all immigration forms are signed under penalty of perjury. Most immigration forms are signed under penalty of perjury, so criminal penalties here. That the job that's the basis of that immigrant petition is still being offered by the employer to the foreign national, and the foreign national has the intent to take on that job when they get their green card, assuming that they're not there with them working with them right now. Um, now, uh, before some clarifying guidance that came out within the last week or week and a half, 
uh, individuals were also submitting medical examinations with these uh, requests. That's a no-no. You don't want to submit medical examinations with interfiling requests. However, if there are special circumstances that go with your case, remember, not every case is like another, right? You know, we're all unique. We all have unique fingerprints and ear uh, shapes. So we similarly have, uh, we similarly have individual immigration processes. So if there are special circumstances that you want to elucidate or highlight or explain, the policy manual seems to give you that flexibility to provide that evidence and documentation to aid the officer who's fielding this discretionary, like Sheila said, um, request for transfer and basis to further be able to resolve and grant that request in their discretion, um, you know, basically addressing any, any um, holes or deficiencies or, or something that you have that could interrupt their ability to transfer the basis. Thank you, Korzad. Makes perfect sense. And the next question that we are routinely asked in situations like this is, will I get any kind of an acknowledgement of my transfer request or will this go into some big dark um, a hole that I will never hear and I won't know if they've got it or lost it in their mail room or whatever. So what's the answer to that, Jess? So the USCIS will not provide a written response to transfer requests. However, they will issue a receipt notice for the I-485 Supplement J form. So it is true that pre-January 2017, we'd only sort of have the FedEx confirmation of the interfiling and have to sort of, you know, keep following up with the USCIS. So now we actually do get this 45 um, Supplement J receipt, so that way we can help track it, and if we need to follow up with the USCIS, we have something to point to rather than just a letter. So the good news is they will give you, they will give you the receipt notice. The bad news is they're not going to really acknowledge that um, written response to the transfer, but we do have that receipt notice that we can follow up on. Wonderful, and that's a big relief to know that there's some piece of paper that says I got something from the government to symbolize or to confirm that, in fact, a filing has happened. The, the next very often uh, the question that we are asked is, but you know what? I stopped maintaining my H-1B or my L-1 status, so do I have to be in some type of a valid non-immigrant status to transfer the basis of my I-485 adjustment application? And the good news is that it is not a requirement to maintain H or L status in order to be able to interfile. The applicant must be in a valid non-immigrant status at the time of the initial I-485 adjustment filing. For the interfiling, however, if the candidate or the applicant is in a period of authorized stay, meaning the person had the previous I-485, which is still pending, so you're in a period of authorized stay, or even if the person is maybe possibly even outside of the United States at that time because they've traveled on the advanced parole or they've traveled on the H or L status as is permissible under the doctrine of dual intent, then this normally would not and should not prevent the person from being able to submit the interfiling request. So thank God we have that clarification. The next question, uh, which is, again, very helpful for people, and Korzat, I'm going to come back to you, is if I'm the candidate and the question is, can I transfer the basis of my I-485 from EB-3 I-140 back to the EB-2 I-140 
and then promptly change jobs or even change jobs and then file or some variation. And that's where I think that January 21st guidance kind of changed things a little bit compared to what we thought we knew before that, or so we thought, but I know people are all over the place with it, which is why that January 21st guidance does its role. So I'm going to transfer uh, uh, the, the, the baton to you, Korzad. Sure, Sheila. So in fact, what you're asking, and what a lot of people ask, is that, okay, so while I'm doing this uh, request for transfer and basis, uh, can I at the same time you know, switch not only the petition upon which my employment is, uh, or upon which my, uh, uh, um, my application is based, but you know, also take advantage of the um, AC21 permanent portability and just you know, maybe go on to a different employer that I'd rather be working for when I get my green card. Um, so the answer to that question really depends on uh, you know, who you're asking, because you know there's some folks out there who like to get into the nitty gritty and talk about you know statutory construction and you know legislative intent and you know ultra-virus policies and all that kind of stuff and all of that's valid and you know lawyers like myself love to geek out on that uh, at cocktail parties but the bottom line is what does USCIS allow and USCIS has been very very clear in what their expectation is they their policy is, is that they will not entertain a portability request. That means a, a, a request to change the underlying employer who's the, that's the basis of the adjustment of status application until 180 days have passed from requesting the transfer in basis. Um, I think that some folks might be confused right now. So let me back up a little bit and explain what portability is. Portability, permanent portability, in the context of a green card, allows an individual to take their green card process from the sponsoring employer to a subsequent employer so long as three conditions are met. One is an approvable and filed immigrant petition, though in reality, it's, approvable and filed means approved in fact. So you really want an approved immigrant petition, I-140. Number two, you have to have a 45 application that's been pending greater than 180 days. And number three, you need to have a job with a new employer in the same or similar job classification. Um, and what the USCIS is effectively saying as part of its policy is, is that, well, when you are requesting a transfer in basis, we're going to pretend like your I-45 has been pending greater than 180 days anymore. We're going to restart that clock for the 45 and, and not allow you to invoke portability until 180 days have passed from the, um, from the date that you uh, did the transfer in basis uh, request. Now, the American Immigration Lawyers Association has asked the USCIS for clarification on this, how they're, how they're looking at it. I'm sure that the American Immigration Lawyers Association liaison group has outlined all of those arguments and, and thoughts uh, about statutory construction and ultra-virus policies that I alluded to when I, when I was speaking earlier. But at this stage, as it stands right now, when you make a transfer and basis request, uh, you're not allowed to change to a different job or a different employer trying to invoke portability at the same time. You're going to have to hold off on that and let that become ripe uh, according to the policy 180 days later. Yeah. So it's true that, you know, that, that particular waiting 180 days almost seems to conflict with the AC21 law and at least what we all thought was the plain reading of the law as Korzad mentioned. So we'll wait and see what happens with that. 
So the next question is, hey, I filed my I-485 concurrently with an EB-3 I-140, and both the I-485 and the I-140 are still pending. Now can I interfile my previously approved EB-2 with the pending I-140 petition? Jessica, what's the answer? Yes, Sheila, this is potentially permitted. Um, The USCIS sort of outlines the different, you know, factors that someone may have, and in fact, they say if it's pending that you, that you can do this. However, it's not really clear whether USCIS is going to go back and adjudicate the EB-3 I-140 petition first, and then entertain your interfiling request. So we're still waiting on um, USCIS guidance on how to answer um, this type of case. I know for a lot of you with the EB-3 I-140s pending, you may have tried to upgrade your case to premium processing, maybe even more than once, you know, keep getting that sort of what they call rejection, where they say, hey, we can't get your original labor certification. In fact, there was a, you know, widespread article about the National Benefits Center and all of the records that are sort of underground during the pandemic that they, that they can't get to. Um, so absolutely, they want, to take, they want you to take advantage of interfiling, but just know that it does become more tricky when that EB-3 I-140 is not approved and you're requesting to sort of change the basis then. We're still sort of awaiting, you know, clarity, but you definitely can file. It's just we don't know how USCS is going to adjudicate that. And the USCS policy manual says irrespective, uh, the USCIS adjudicators are allowed to approve the 485 based on either the EB-2 or EB-3, whichever one was previously approved. So, again, you know, you have the actual law that we talked about, the statute, then you have the AC-21 law, and then you have, of of course, AC-21, what Corzad referred to, and then you have policy, USCIS policy guidance and manuals, and then you have USCIS memos, and then you have real practice that happens, and generally all of them have to drive together and not conflict with each other. Um, So then the next question is, you know, instead of doing an interfiling, why can't I just file another 485 application and just, I know I have to pay a whole bunch more in government filing fees, but it seems like then that way I don't have to worry about all this other sort of jumping through these other hoops. Um, but the USCIS, as a general rule, they generally say, they have said, and they do not recommend that applicants file ever a second 485 adjustment of status application. They recommend that applicants should interfile rather than submitting a new adjustment application. We have heard of some lawyers filing a second I-485, which of course contradicts the USCIS guidance on avoiding the second 485 because that will both complicate and delay the approval potentially of both 485s because they cannot make a decision on any case until they merge all of the cases with each other and get the whole file and the whole package in front of them. So we don't recommend it either, and that's been the policy for at least 20 or 30 years. Um, The next question is, what if my EB-3 I-140 was filed as an amendment? Am I able to request the transfer back to the EB-2 case, Kurzad? Sheila, you ask deep questions that don't have an answer. Um, the <laughs> honest answer to that is 
it's unclear. Uh, USCIS hasn't said anything. Uh, once again, there's that kind of, a, it's a gray area as to whether the USCIS would look at a um, adjustment application that was filed with an immigrant petition concurrently uh, that, was, um, that was pending as an amendment uh, as, uh, as to whether it would have any effect on the underlying uh, previously approved immigrant petition that was, or not, not even underlying, just the previously approved immigrant petition that was based on the same labor certification just because the amended box was, box was, uh, was uh, ticked versus the, um, versus the new petition box. Um, there are anecdotes and, um, and thoughts on this that run the, the spectrum uh, in, in, within, in practice. You know, and, and this makes sense because adjustment of status is ultimately a discretionary decision by the, uh, by the U.S. government. They're, neither, uh, they're, they're not required to uh, grant it um, or they can grant it even when there might be some questions about uh, eligibility that they may find have been resolved in a different way. Um, but it's, it, it, is, it is clear as mud whether USCIS will accept the request um, or, or whether they'll uh, treat it as a change to the underlying immigrant petition. Nobody knows. Okay, thank you. And that's, that's, I guess we don't know. And in general, at the multi-law firm, we do not tend to file the I-140 as amendments in the downgrade or upgrade cases. We just file it like it's a new because it's the same underlying perm that is used and we don't want to amend it to avoid all of this confusion that potentially could arise. Um, the next question is, I have already requested um, to change the basis of my 485. Should I now send in another 485 supplement J to the new address? Jessica. So, Sheila, in the USCIS's announcement, they've said, no, please don't send duplicative requests. You know, they are still going to work those requests. Um, obviously, the 45 Supplement J instructions, you know, tell you to file it based on the 45 instructions. And that was prior to giving this sort of new address in California. Um, but they said they will still work on those cases. Please don't send another request. Um, I also just wanted to mention when Corzeb was talking about amendments, it is also very good to make sure that there hasn't been a corporate change. I know that a lot of things are coming up where people potentially filed an amendment to EB3, but with corporate change or, you know, where there was a successor in interest because of a merger acquisition. So keep in mind that if that happened for your EB3, then your EB-2 is likely not going to be able to be interfiled just like it is. So it's just another factor to just sort of discuss with your company or an attorney because um, we're seeing a lot of issues with companies that may have, you know, been merged or acquired during this time period. Thank you, Jessica. The next question often that as an employer, employee, family member, hey, what happens to my EAD AP when I interfile? Are those, will I get new ones now with the new interfiling? What happens to those? Well, the good news again is that the EAD, the Employment Authorization Document of the Advanced Parole, which are a benefit of the pending I-485 Adjustment of Status application, are, they are not tied to a specific employer or a job. They are just tied to the pending 485, and hence they continue to remain valid even if you interfile. Uh, next question, can I file my medical exam reports or the updates with the interfiling request? Of course not. 
So I think I, you know, stole my own thunder on this a little bit earlier in our discussion today, but uh, no, <laughs> uh, USCIS does not want to see medical examinations coming with these requests to that office in California. Uh, they um, would prefer that those requests be submitted to the USCIS when they ask for them in the future, either through a request for evidence or if an interview is scheduled, you can uh, bring it directly to the interview. Great. Thank you. Uh, and we also generally recommend, in general, not to just because people say, oh, I'm waiting for it, the priority date's moving, can I, you know, send it in. In general, avoid sending in something into what we call general correspondence, so it actually goes into that big black hole that could cause complications for you. So you're better off waiting for the RFE, sending it at the correct time. Um, next, what if my EB3 jumps ahead now of EB2? Should I again interfile in the future? What's the answer, Jess? So technically speaking, USS says yes, you are allowed to interfile between employment-based categories again. However, sort of like how we are telling people don't file multiple 45 that could cause confusion. Likewise, if you have sort of start having multiple interfilings, that could also, you know, confuse the government. So it's not that it's not possible. It's just sort of the more paperwork that there is, sort of the more confusion, you know, that there could be. Okay, thank you. And um, partially because we always try to monitor the time and make sure we're within the 30 to 45 minutes schedule for all of you as busy, busy professionals. Um, hopefully this is the last question is, what if I move employers? Can the new employer then interfile using my old employer's I-140 petition? Can I use the supplement J? And the simple answer is probably not or no, to be precise, because you must have a valid bona fide job offer based on the I-140 petition approval in order for the interfiling to take place. Uh, therefore, if the, the employer that filed the I-140 petition is required to sign the valid supplement J to confirm that the job offer is still an open bona fide job offer. Can't have mixing and matching of different people trying to take over somebody else's job, even though technically the whole idea of supplement J was to file a new job or a new job offer, but the problem is now the interfiling causes this additional step. So hopefully we've touched upon the most commonly asked questions, FAQs pertaining to this whole issue. I'm sure we will continue to get more and more questions as time passes and we see more RFEs or denials or notice of intentions to deny, noids, et cetera. And this whole area with interfiling and or changing the basis of your 485, clearly there are subtle issues, there are complex issues, there are changing issues. And we talked earlier about if there's a corporate change, a merger, a spin-off, a subsidiary, change in employers, change in location, all of that. If you have an attorney, you obviously want to discuss with your attorney. If you don't have an attorney, you certainly want to use a good, knowledgeable attorney. And as you can see from this discussion, we certainly have an incredibly brilliant, amazing team at the Murti Law Firm available to mentor and handhold and guide you with the latest guidance issued from the government to ensure as far as possible and practical to mentor, guide, and help you as you deal with these issues that are ever-changing. So on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, 
my two esteemed colleagues, Kohzad Mehta and Jessica Beaver, and our entire team at the Murti Law Firm. We want to thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. We hope we have educated you and enlightened you and empowered you so that you continue to feel like you are not alone on that immigration law journey. Thank you and have a wonderful afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.